You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. So that is the original sister wife tale. Um, No one else watches sister wives on TLC? No? Okay. All right. Um, Welcome to Redemption Church. We are a Jesus-centered community pursuing connection and redemption through grace, sharing, and exploration. Really glad that you're here this morning. Um, If you're new here, and even if you're not new here, we have this website, redemptionhou.com slash today. There's all sorts of helpful things there. One, there's a link you can click and say, hey, I'm new. It'll ask you for some contact information. We can reach out help you get uh, plugged in, ask whatever questions you have. We'd love to get to know you, hear your story, as well as give you a chance to know us. But also, for those of you seasoned vets who've been around forever, this is also where you can find out what's going on. You can see today's scripture. Um, It's a really helpful resource that we put up there, and I don't always make super clear as to what it is. And so, there you go. And don't feel any kind of way about pulling out your phone in the middle of the church and going there or to um, your Bible app, or even to Instagram, only God can judge you, it'll be fine. Um, So we're in the middle of this series during the summer where we're going through the entire Old Testament, and part of me feels like, oh my gosh, what have we done? How are we going to even actually do this? We've created a reading plan. Um, Hopefully you guys have been engaged with the reading plan. If you haven't been, that's totally fine. It is okay. But I want to encourage you to do that because I think it would add a ton of color to what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. And if you did do the reading or attempted to do the reading this week, you were probably a little overwhelmed at the pace at which we were reading. We were reading like five chapters a day, which is about 30 minutes, which I know in 2023, you're like, you want me to read every day for 30 minutes? Are you kidding me? Yeah. They're not always going to be that fast. It's not always going to be that much text. Um, We're going to start Exodus tomorrow. So really, really, I want to invite you into that. You can find a link. That's right, on the Today page. But something happened yesterday. So I was reading, uh, I was finishing my reading of Genesis yesterday because unfortunately I asked you all to do it. So I'm like, crap, I guess I have to as well, right? Um, And to actually read it the way that I've laid it out for y'all feels like it would be right. And so I'm reading it and I get to this reading of Jacob's blessing of Joseph and his two sons as I finish Genesis. And like much of you, many of you, I'm reading through this, and some of it is like interesting and intriguing, and some of it I'm like, oh, I wonder what this means, and I do some exploration, and the majority of it is just kind of in one ear and out the other, and I'm just kind of letting the process happen, and I get to the end, and Jacob is blessing uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he speaks this blessing over them, and all of a sudden I felt like this emotion welling up from inside of me. 
that the, the, these, these people, this family that I've been spending the last week and a half or two weeks with in this scroll called Genesis, all of a sudden just this flood of these memories of these faces and these events and God's persistent faithfulness to them. And I just, I felt like I was watching the last episode of Friends, right? Where they're like zooming in on the door frame in the apartment and it was like, oh my God, I want to weep. And it's, I don't know. No, no Friends fans in here. Okay, cool. Um, but it was like this strange, odd spiritual moment that I cannot explain to you other than the whole reason I'm inviting us to read the scriptures together is I think the scriptures can shape our imagination. I think they can form our hearts in some surprising ways, and they can do things like this to us, where it's not that we've learned some new bit of information, it's not that our theology is now right or better or different, but rather we have sat in God's world for long enough that it has somehow made its way into the crevices of our hearts and it's softened them. And we find ourselves somehow drawn into the story of God in a way that we might not have otherwise. And so we're spending our time in the Old Testament. This is our heritage as people of Jesus. We are invited in, as Paul says in the New Testament, we are made a part of this family that we're reading about here in Genesis through Jesus, who is the one that this family is uh, pointing towards. But these scriptures were, in fact, Jesus' scriptures. These scriptures are the scriptures that shaped Jesus' imagination as he was growing up as he was teaching in the synagogues and in the temple, it was these scriptures that he was reading and dialoguing over. It was these scriptures that he prayed. And in one sense, these scriptures help us better understand Jesus and the world that he lived in, but they're also, Jesus assures us, um, all pointing to him. And so, um, I think it's important for us to spend some time in the Old Testament that can be so dark and so scary. Because I think, as we will see today, that so much of the Old Testament's darkness and scariness is not actually there and is misrepresented and overblown. Um, We'll look at some of the dark and scary things. But really what we see over and over and over and over again is that the God of Genesis is Jesus. That that Yahweh of, of the people of Israel, of the temple, of the Holy of Holies is the person of Jesus. And so it should not shock us that when we see this all along, like, oh yeah, of course he's gentle, of course he's faithful, of course he gives people better than they deserve. And so that is exactly what we see today. Now before we do, I had just a a teachable moment here on reading the Bible, reading the Old Testament. Um, Context matters a lot, and I know a lot of you are... um, academically inclined. I was literally filtering out the, filtering out the word nerd there. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So some of you like are just, you're not happy with like, I need to know what is this Hebrew word? And I don't know Hebrew, but I still need to know it. And what, right? So context matters. And I want to give you like, there is no way that we can read through the Old Testament and at the same time, pull every single thing you could pull out of it. But what you can do to understand a little bit more of the world and the culture, there's a couple of really important resources that I've found particularly helpful that will give you enough of a taste that I think you uh, would benefit from. So the first is a, a translation and notes by uh, a Jewish 
Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter. This is my number one recommendation. He does a translation of the entire Old Testament. I was using his translation of Genesis this week. It is fantastic. Um, His notes are fantastic. His translation is fantastic. It's just really, really helpful to see things um, in his world. He's doing a lot of the, the heavy academic work for you. Another really, really fantastic one, uh, and this is both Old and New Testament, is the NIV Cultural Backgrounds Bible Study or Study Bible. It is fantastic. It just came out, so it's got well, just came out. Came out within the last like five or six years, so it's got like updated notes and scholarship and all of that. And then the last one is the New Oxford Annotated Bible. This was updated in 2018. Again, fantastic notes that can help you understand. Wait, what am I reading here? Because if we're reading all of it the same, if we're reading all of it flatly, if we're reading Genesis 1 the way that we're reading Genesis 12, you're reading one of them wrong and maybe both of them wrong. If you're reading the account of Sodom and Gomorrah as like a discourse on homosexuality, you're reading the story of Sodom and Gomorrah wrong. And so one of the things that can help us like understand that is by digging into the cultural historical backgrounds and these resources could help you do that. So there you go. Teachable moment over. Let's talk about Genesis. So Jordan did a fantastic job last week of talking through the flood and giving us an overview of the first big chunk of Genesis. We get to Genesis chapter 12, and Genesis 12 is is picking up and building on this foundation that was laid through the first 11 chapters. So the first 11 chapters are essentially God has created this beautiful cosmos and he's put in this beautiful cosmos this this human and this human is meant to be the, the vehicle through which God will bless and cause the cosmos to flourish. And so it's like this, that humanity is meant to be this mediator between God's goodness and blessing to the rest of creation. And so he places them in the garden and he says, hey, here's all these trees, enjoy the garden, tend the garden, take care of the garden, uh, but don't eat from this one tree over here. And there's a whole thing there. We can talk about it some other time. We talk about it a ton here, which is why we just kind of ignored those chapters and dove into the flood. But what happens there is they take the fruit and they eat. And that this humanity who is meant to be the source of blessing and flourishing to the rest of the cosmos is now instead the source of cursing and death to the rest of creation. So then rather than the image of God being spread upon the face of the earth, rather than the Garden of Eden expanding and paradise filling the earth, rather than blessing filling the earth, what's filling the earth is violence and murder death, and humans who are just cursing one another left and right, not like in the like Brooklyn way, like, hey, hey, right? Uh, But like, no, 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 you and your children and your children's children, may they all die a long and painful death. Like, that's like, whoa, dude, that's intense. Um, And this is what humanity has become. And so God decides, I can't deal with this. This is breaking my heart. I need to start over. And so what God does is he cleanses the earth. He floods it. He washes it and then begins creation over again. And the the way that the story is told, and again, Jordan did a fantastic job of, of breaking this down last week. So if you're intrigued, you can go back and listen to that. But God literally uncreates and then recreates and starts over with Noah and his family so that Noah and his family are going to be the new humans who are going to spread blessing upon the face of the earth. You with me so far? 
And if you read this week, this was one of those places where you read it and you were probably like, huh, that's kind of a weird thing to put in there. Oh, well. And so what happens is they get off the boat. Uh, Noah builds an altar and worships. And we're like, yay, this is going great. We see worship. Yay. And then Noah like builds a vineyard and he gets super drunk. And like all of a sudden we see fruit now controlling humans again in this weird way that uh, feels a little bit parallel to what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. And then Ham who is Noah's oldest, decides, yeah, I don't want to wait for my dad to die to have the power. I'm going to take the power. So what he does is he uncovers Noah's nakedness, which is a really polite way of saying that he has uh, physically and sexually violated him in a prison power move kind of thing. This was intended to put shame and to debase his father so that he could then puff his chest out and be like, Who's the man now? And so Noah, right? So we see like this violent act of like shaming and trying to take what is mine. And so Noah's response is then to turn around and do what? To curse his son, Ham. Well, not his son. He actually curses his son's son, whose name is Canaan. And so he curses Canaan and he says, curse be you and curse be all of Canaan's descendants and All of a sudden, very quickly, within like a few verses of God cleansing the earth and starting over again, we see violence and power grabs and cursing and death, and we realize, oh no, something is deeply wrong with humanity. And yet God has assured them, I will not wipe you out. I will never give you what you deserve ever again. I will only choose to give you better than you deserve. And so we pick it up. In chapter 11. By the way, this uh, Ham's <laughs> encounter with his dad, which is just so like weird for us. We're like, dude, this is, this is some Old Testament stuff. Um, this echoes the story of Lot with his daughters. Like there's, there's all sorts of these parallels throughout Genesis. And, so, and we're meant to literally like see them. It's, it's put together in a pretty brilliant way. So we get to Genesis chapter 11. This is after Noah has come off the boat and done his thing. And you see uh, these people gathering together to build a tower. And I'm just going to read these couple of verses to give us some context here. So this is Genesis 11, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along, go for it. The whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. Now, that seems like a pretty innocent thing to do, right? We're reading this, we're like, I don't know, they wanted to build a skyscraper and thought that they could be really famous if they did. Uh, what's the big deal here? There's a couple problems. One is their refusal to, do, to, to be what God has called them to be, which is the blessing on humanity was that you would uh, be fruitful and multiply and scatter and fill the earth. And instead, what they do is the opposite. And they literally come together and they're going to try and take um, a name for themselves through this ingenuity and in their building of this tower. And this is where Genesis is really going to help us understand that there's, there's two story arcs going through the entire narrative. 
And I'm going I'm to call these the way of nature and the way of grace because this is what several famous theologians have called them and one of my favorite Terrence Malick films uh, addresses this at the very beginning of it and it's why it's my favorite film. Nature and grace. And nature is this way of like, think survival of the fittest. I'm going to get mine even if it costs you yours. Um, there's a famous Genesis scholar named Bruce Waltke and he says it this way, that that. This is the idea that I will disadvantage my neighbor in order to advantage myself. When as uh, over and over and over again, the way of God seems to be that he's asking people to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage their neighbor. So the way of nature is the way of power grabbing and self-preservation and, well, I don't know, I'm sorry, I've got to hoard all of this because I need to survive. It is the idea of building a tower in order to make your name great rather than trusting that God is the source of all goodness and blessing and actually wants these things for you. And why this matters is because you and I live in a world of cursing and death. And I think, if we have ears to hear, that we should rightly be hearing that we believe that the only way to really actually have a good life is by going out there and taking it. It's hustle. It's our intelligence or our degrees or our ingenuity. And we do this on a like, broad scale, like AI is going to save the day or destroy us all or whatever. Um, but really, I don't care about that. <laughs> what I care about is like each one of us individually wrestles with this on a pretty consistent and regular basis. And I know that because I wrestle with this and I'm a pastor. Like My job is to not wrestle with this, and yet I continue to wrestle with this. We think that we can build a happy life by doing things to get there, whatever that is. Stack dollar bills, um, get lots of followers, get lots of likes, drink, have lots of friends. I don't know. If I just had a child, then I would be happy. If I could just get a spouse, then I would be happy. If I just had more friends, then I'd be happy. If I could just finish this program, then I'll be happy. If I could just build a name for myself, then I'll have human flourishing. Then I'll have life. We must make a name for ourselves. We get to Genesis chapter 12, and this is really where the story of Genesis begins. Everything up to this has been the Star Wars scrolling and a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Like, that's a really long intro. Yeah, it's a really long story, okay? But all of a sudden, the story, like, grinds to a halt. We've gone through, like, these generations and this eons of time, and then all of a sudden, it's like, we're going to stop, and we're going to just look at this one man and his family and it's going to spend the next, uh, uh, I'm trying to do the math in my head, 38 chapters um, doing that. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the contrast here is meant to be potent and pal- palatable. palatable? Pal- you, know, you know what I'm trying to say. And it jumps off the page. It's supposed to jump off the page at us because it's literally like a word-for-word repetition of what just happened in the chapter before. Chapter before, Genesis chapter 11. They tried to make a name great for themselves, so God had to scatter them. Genesis chapter 12, I will make a name, I will make your name great. 
On the heels of humanity's attempt to subvert God and make a name for themselves, God continues and refuses to reject humanity and continues to work towards humanity's blessing and flourishing, even in the face of their obstinance and subversion. They don't deserve to be blessed. They don't deserve to flourish. They deserve cursing and death. And yet, God said, no, 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 Abram, I'm going to choose you, and through you, I'm going to bless you and your family, and then through that, I'm going to bless the entire world. Every human being will be blessed by me through you. And so, in the face of this, we get this really intense um, God's centralizing himself and centering dependence on him in the face of like human ingenuity. Like listen to it again. Go, right? So this is the, hey, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go and then the rest is all on God. I will show you. I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless you and then I will be responsible for cursing those who curse you. Your job is not to dole out judgment. Your job is to go. And I will do the rest. And so the story of Genesis and really the story of the entire Old Testament and really the story of you and me is a story of God's continual work to bring about humanity's flourishing and blessing through us and in us. And yet, we continue to subvert that plan. And yet, God does it anyways. This is the rest of Genesis. Is It's not because Abraham was faithful, God was able to do this. No, no, no. It was the disaster that was Abraham because immediately on the heels of like, hey, go and I will bless you was, oh yeah, by the way, don't take any of your family members. And so Abraham left and he took his nephew Lot. We're like, uh-oh, that's a little red flag. And then the very next thing he does is there was a famine in the land that he has just promised you. And so he leaves the land and goes where? To empire, to security, to Egypt, right? Now, if you're, if you're a Hebrew and you're reading this story, Egypt means one big glaring thing to you and it is not good. Egypt is the oppressor. It is the empire. It is the slave master. And so he leaves the promised land and goes into the hands of the slave master and the oppressor looking for safety and security and provision and blessing. And when he gets there, in fear, he says, oh man, my wife's really hot. They're going to know that, and they're going to kill me and take her. So here's what I'll do. I'll just make up a lie. Tell them you're my sister. And so they do that. And like the, the Hebrew does not mince words here. And Pharaoh took her to be his wife. That is not like an engagement process. This is like the uh, honeymoon suite on The Bachelorette. Okay, everybody knows what's going on unless you're like the one token virgin that's in that class of bachelorette. Man, again, I just feel like I watch very different TV than y'all, okay? (laughs) God's still working on me, y'all, okay? I know that y'all are just out there watching your wholesome chosen or whatever it's called, I don't know. But you need to understand what Abraham is doing here. Hey, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. He takes his wife and he gives her to another man. 
I will bring you children from your wife through whom I will bless the world with. And he then takes her and like, here, I don't know, marry her. I don't want to die. Like this is not an example of like, wow, faithful Abraham, that's so beautiful, that's so good. Also, just life lesson from the Old Testament. If your fiance or husband is trying to give you away to another man, like indecent proposal style, you should just run, okay? Red flags everywhere. Don't be involved in that relationship. It's not great. And he doesn't just do it once, y'all. He does it twice. He does it in the, the next chapter. Over and over and over and over again, Abraham does not trust God to give him what God has promised him. Him and Sarah come up with a scheme of like, hey, I can't get pregnant, and like apparently God is not going to actually give us this nation, so I don't know, here's our slave. You can go and sleep with her. Now, now Hagar, the slave, obviously has zero choice in this. So there is a, there is a huge act of oppression and violence that's happening here. And then on top of that, Sarah, whose idea this was, gets ticked that Hagar actually was able to get pregnant, and like now there's a problem, and so she's like, yeah, get rid of her. So they abandon Hagar to die. Abraham, great man of faith, right? If we're reading the Old Testament in ways that we're meant to like pull these, oh, here's five leadership principles from Abraham. Like we're just, just don't, okay? Uh, And I know people try to do this. Don't do that. That's not the point. And so him and Sarah's scheme to impregnate Sarah's slave is a problem. When God like shows up in person and meets them face to face and says, hey, this time next year, you're going to be pregnant. Abraham laughs in God's face and Sarah laughs in her tent. And so God's like, oh, you think that's funny? You're going to name his name. His name's going to be Isaac and that means laughter, right? So God's funny too. God's got jokes. And so then you have Isaac, who's a victim of his appetites and favoritism. He's this passive figure who literally gets passed around. He gets uh, dealt shady when he goes to marry Rebecca, and he's like, oh, serve for seven years, and then you can marry, oh, sorry, wrong sister, or wrong daughter, my bad. I guess you got to serve again. And he ends up like in this weird indentured servitude, and then he has two wives who are literally passing him back and forth, and he says nothing throughout the entire narrative, which is very unique, right? So in Abraham's story, he's talking a lot. In Jacob's story, he's talking a lot. In Isaac, there's like very little dialogue. And it's not until you get to the end where Isaac is blessing his sons that he's, he, he like bursts in the door. He's like, I'm hungry. Give me this. And you see that the appetite of Isaac is actually the same appetite of Esau who sells his birthright for some of that red red, which is the soup that was being made when he was famished. And then you see Jacob. Oh, Jacob, my boy Jacob. Me and Jacob are like... Sympatico, okay? So Jacob spends his life grasping at the thing that God would promise he would receive. Right? That's not a good thing. <laughs> he like comes out, hey, before they're even, before uh, you've even conceived, you're gonna have two, and the, the younger one is actually gonna be the blessed one. The, the older one is gonna serve the younger one. And so upon being born, the first one comes out. He, uh, uh, Esau is born and Jacob is grasping at the power. He's grasping at the heel of Esau as they're being born. And then the rest of Jacob's narrative is him chasing after and trying to manipulate and coerce the blessing of God to get to the position that God has already said, no, no, it's, it's yours, man. Like, what are you doing? 
And you get to the end of Jacob's story and he's about to go back to Esau, his brother, whose last time he saw him was trying to kill him. And so here's what kind of dude Jacob is. He takes his least favorite wife and their kids and he puts them in the very front of the caravan. And then he takes his second least favorite wife and their kids and he puts them next in the caravan. And then he takes his favorite wife, Rachel and Joseph, Joseph, yeah, Joseph, and he puts them next, and then this dude, he's in the back, right? And there's Esau coming with 400 men, and his whole strategy is, this way, if he meets us early, I'll have time to run and live. This is at the end of his life. This is not like, oh, faithless Jacob, who then, uh, God changes, and then has this wonderful testimony, right? (laughs) So what happens that night is he falls asleep and God shows up and wrestles him. And he meets Jacob where Jacob is at. You want to wrestle Jacob? Let's wrestle. He doesn't let Jacob win, but he also chooses to not win himself. And instead, God puts him in this weird like ninja hip hold. He like touches this pressure point in his hip. So the rest of Jacob's life, he's walking with this limp. And like the narrative doesn't tell you anything has happened other than just he wrestled with this man and he realizes, oh man, that man was God. And he gets up and he's like, I have wrestled with God. Anyways, and then he goes out and the very next part of the story is, and Jacob passed up Rachel and Joseph and the next family and the next family. And he went in front of everyone to meet Esau by himself. So day before, I've got to put everyone I can in front of me to protect myself. Has this encounter with God where they wrestle and then puts himself in the front. Something happened here. And in that process, God changes his name to Israel, which means you wrestled with God. And this is the story of Israel, that they will wrestle with God. And so throughout this narrative, we learn a couple of things about what God is like and what God chooses to do. So the first thing we learn is that God chooses the lesser. God does not use the rich and the powerful to bless the world. God always seems to choose the one you don't expect God to choose. And among the messy family dynamics, the power plays, the the weird, there's some weird sex stuff. There's just lots of strange stuff going on. There's this promise that God gives that prevails in the face of humanity's attempt to get it wrong over and over and over and over again. And yet God's purposes continue to go forward. And sometimes they get it right. But over and over and over again, God subverts traditional power structures. And he chooses the least expected to have the power. And he gives blessings to the ones you don't expect him to give blessings to, like Hagar and her son Ishmael. And it's almost always a guarantee that the one who thinks that they deserve the power or who, who, like human culture and society in that world has said, this is who deserves it or this is who ought to have it, is almost always the one who doesn't get it. It's always the least, the second born, the third born, the middle child. And so over and over and over again, God gives power to the weak and not to the strong. Like if you don't hear Jesus yet, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Right, this is Paul, my His power is made uh, full in my weakness. And God continues to work through the mess of this family to bring about the redemption of the world. 
He continues to work through the mess. Like, and I don't, know what, I don't know what your family story is, but I'm pretty sure like incest is maybe not involved and murder is probably not. And those two things definitely aren't involved at once unless you just had a terrible life. But there is just a lot that is broken in this very concentrated family. And yet by the, by the time you get to the end of the story, you see this family is wealthy, has like kids running everywhere, has a promised land that they've yet to actually inherit because when the story ends, they're in Egypt and that's meant to be like a dun-dun-dun like as you're reading the story. But the point is not that God has blessed them because they've done da-da-da-da. The point is that God has blessed them in spite of themselves because God has chosen to bless humanity. And so God's blessing, God's promise is not dependent on us getting it right. And I know we know this, I think we know this, I hope we know this, but like, can we hear it again? Because so much of my own like stress and anxiety, and, and not anxiety in like the clinical sense, but anxiety in the sense of like when I show up in the world, I am reacting from a place of fear, from a place of insecurity, from a place of like not, I'm not enough, and so I've got to try and, right, this is why Jacob and me are boys, I've got to manipulate and maneuver and don't let anyone know who you really are because then, right? And yet in the face of all of that, God is faithful. And really what's going on there is distrust, if I'm being really honest. That I think our problem, maybe projecting here, is not that God is not faithful, and it's not that we are too broken for God, but it is our continued and willful unbelief to believe that God actually really is for us. That God actually really does want better for you than you even want for yourself. That God really actually loves you. And so what we learn from Genesis is that it's not dependent on us getting right, that God is actually and really for us, and that God is far more gracious than we could ever think or deserve or believe. The story of Genesis is one where God's desire to bless humanity, choosing to do through a single family, even though that family is a hot mess, is constantly in rivalry and dispute with one another. And yet, that mess, that rivalry, that dispute, even that violence is the vehicle through which God has decided, I will bless anyways. And that, my friends, is grace. That, my friends, is Jesus. That, my friends, is a God who is for you, whether you want him to be or not whether you believe he is or not, a God who is carrying you and breathing life into you and choosing to bless you and causing you to flourish in this life and in the kingdom to come, regardless of what you do between now and then. Now, don't get, me, don't get it wrong. Like We can make a mess of things, and we will experience the messiness of the mess that we have made, but that does not change God's disposition towards us. And so what can then happen is if we will actually entrust ourselves to that, if we will really actually believe, no, God is for me, we can actually be patient. 
We could actually be present. We could actually just go, man, I'm, I'm broken and a mess, but you know what? I, I'm enough. We could actually be beloved sons and daughters of God if we will believe that God is really for us. And so for me, what this looks like is every single morning, I wake up and I do my best to sit in the presence of Jesus to try and hear that reminder that I am for you, Brandon. I am for you. You don't need to wrestle with me. You don't need to wrestle with man. You just need to hear that I am for you. And whether you try really hard or whether you just sit and be, I am working all things together towards your good. That is my promise to you. And my job is to sit and hear it and believe it. And some days I do and some days I don't, but I come back morning after morning for that reminder because I need it. Our concept of grace is a concept of a God who is working for us and towards our good in spite of our continued fear and our continued attempts to grasp control of things that we think will give us what we need. And I, and I want you to hear this as we wrap it up. Like God loves you and is for you regardless of whether you finish that program or not regardless of whether you get married or not, regardless of whether you've been divorced or not, regardless of whether you're gay or not, regardless of your gender or not, regardless of whether you get that job or that promotion or you've gotten fired, God is for you. Regardless if you've loved your neighbor as yourself, regardless if you've loved God, God is for you. And so walking with God which is so much of what we see in Genesis and the Old Testament, he walked with God, he walked with God, he walked with God, is not, oh wow, he did everything right. Is not, wow, and they were like really moral, more moral than everybody else. No, when he walks with God, it is often a euphemism for he trusted God. That 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 individual believed that God is actually for me and is going to bring about my blessing and my flourishing and in this way, or in his way and in his time. And so I want to leave you with a couple of questions. Like, really? These are questions that are cliche and it would be easy to like hear them and be like, okay, well, we got it. But if you actually like sat with them and prayed through them this week, I think there might be some interesting, maybe painful and difficult things that come up, but I think they're good things that you can then pray through and let God deal with. But do you believe that God cares about you? Do you actually believe that God cares about you? So I would have answered yes a couple months ago. I had a spiritual director sit me down and we were going through some spiritual practices and maybe this is too weird for some of y'all. It's okay. Um, and I, I was just in this place of just feeling like I was being pulled in a million different directions. And she's like, the, the picture that's coming to me is like those, uh, those, like the rack, right? Where they tie up each limb and they're stretching you and they've ripped off all your clothes. And so you're like exposed and vulnerable and being stretched. And she's like, so I want you to like imagine that you're in this position and I want you to imagine that now Jesus is in front of you. Jesus is looking at you, and I, wanna, I want you to ask, where is he looking? And so as I like, entered into this imaginary like, mental image, um, Jesus is looking me square in the eyes. 
He said, what does his face look like? And there was this smile on the face of Jesus. And it was the, the way that I described it in that moment is there was this look of delight. And then there it was. I didn't want to believe that. And all of a sudden I realized, I don't think that God actually really delights in me. It's hard for me to believe that God actually really loves me, like as I am in my messiness. That God somehow loves me for my effort, or God somehow loves me when I get it right, or God somehow loves me if I'm trying really hard or doing really well, and in reality it is, no, 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 God loves you right now, as you are. So that's question one. Question two, do you believe that God wants good things for you? Do you believe that God wants good things for you? Now this is hard because I think sometimes our definition of good things and God's definition of good things aren't exactly the same, which is kind of the whole point of Genesis. And sometimes God's timing for good things and our timing for good things doesn't exactly line up, which again can cause us to enter into that state of reaction. But the way we combat that is we come back to this question, does God want good things from you? Is God like holding out? Is he waiting for you to say the magic words? Is he, uh, I don't think the answer is yes to any of those questions. I think, no, 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 God wants good things for you. And the New Testament affirms over and over and over, and he is giving them to you here and now and has assured you that whatever you lack, you will one day receive, and that whatever is being taken from you, whatever that means, will be returned in full. But do you believe that? And if we allow ourselves to believe that God really does care for me, and God really does want good for me, we all of a sudden show up into the world in a very different way. We wake up on a Monday morning and we go into work and we show up as just like a different type of person. <laughs> and so this is the invitation, and I think this is the invitation of Jesus. Do you want to be content? Do you want some self-worth? Do you want substantive joy? Do you want to be patient? Do you want to be generous? Do you want to live into the fruit of the Spirit? Then here the Spirit is telling the people of God, God is for you and God is working towards your good. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.